You're listening to The Souvenir Shop, a podcast about random objects from the past. Number 36. Believe it or not. A 1936 edition of Ripley's Omnibus Believe It or Not, a classic piece of pre-war Americana. The title page describes it as a modern book of wonders, miracles, freaks, monstrosities and almost impossibilities, written, illustrated and proved by Robert L. Ripley. This was a 16th birthday present from my Auntie Miriam, my mother's youngest sister. Decades before the Guinness Book of Records or Schott's Miscellany, avid connoisseurs of trivia consulted their copy of Ripley to learn of such wonders as the man with two sets of eyes, the ham seller named Sam Heller, or the chicken in Massachusetts that laid a perfectly square egg. It is, as my brother Andrew once declared, the perfect bog-reading book. To Auntie Miriam, trivia was a serious business. She spent hours discussing with my father and mother matters of such grave importance as the order of cinemas you encountered if walking from Shoreditch High Street to Stamford Hill, or whether it was in top hat or swing time that Fred Astaire performed Bojangles of Harlem. So, the gift of an old hardback of Ripley came as no surprise. It was presented to me with all the solemnity of a King James Bible given as a confirmation gift. The difference being that unlike the authorised version, I still reread my copy of Ripley. In the early 1970s, Miriam divorced my Uncle Laurie, and a few years later she married Seymour, a New Yorker she met via an ad in the New Statesman. Seymour spoke with the slow Jewish Brooklyn drawl of a natural storyteller, the kind that's now dying out, relating tales of his youth in the 1930s New York you hoped would spin out forever. How I wish I'd recorded that voice. When Miriam and Seymour married in 1977, they planned to live both in London and in an apartment overlooking Central Park West. The only formality needed was for Miriam to get her green card allowing residency in the US. She completed the form from the US Embassy, which included ticking the box in question 56. Have you ever been a member of, or in any way affiliated with, the Communist Party, or any other totalitarian party, in the United States or abroad? Miriam, in common with most of her friends in the late 40s and early 50s, was a member of the Young Communist League. As the truth came out years before Hungary and the Prague Spring, that the Soviet Union's brutal autocracy didn't match her own idealism, disillusion set in and she left the party. So she had nothing to hide when she ticked the box. The next question led on from this, asking for any subsequent political activity, against which she wrote, not applicable. The embassy rejected her application. Surely this was a mistake. After all, Miriam had friends with far more subversive pasts already living across the pond. She appealed and an invitation to the US embassy for an interview duly arrived. The Homeland Security official looked at the file on his desk and methodically went through the answers given on the form. You state you were a member of the Young Communist League the youth wing of the Communist Party of Great Britain, he said. Could you tell me the years you joined and left the party? I joined in 1949, aged 13, and left in 52, she replied. And you are sure you have participated in no political activity since that time, continued the official. No, none at all, said Miriam. The official reached into the file for a stiff brown envelope. It contained two colour photographs which he placed across the desk facing Miriam. These were taken during an anti-apartheid march in 1972, he explained. The second picture is an enlargement of the first. Can you please identify the woman in the blue coat in the both pictures? Miriam recognised herself in the photos. But either she had forgotten or didn't consider marching against a racist government breaking UN law to be, in any meaningful way, political activity. Perhaps a friend had simply invited her along for a little light protesting, followed by shopping and tea at Lion's Corner House. More to the point, 
she was shocked that the security services had the resources to record and identify peaceful demonstrators in such a way. A few months after I learned of Miriam's embassy meeting, I took part in an anti-Nazi league march from central London to Victoria Park. I supported the cause, but suspect that the main reason I was there was because the Clash played a free gig at the destination. I looked up at the rooftops as the march crawled along Oxford Street and saw, as Miriam's case confirmed, the roofs of Selfridges and Debenhams packed with long-lens photographers. They couldn't all have been gentlemen of the press. The free gig confirmed that I would never be a fan of the Clash, but it's those photographers who have stuck with me down the years. For decades, we have become accustomed to shrugging off the levels of surveillance we now live under, be it the preponderance of CCTV, or that cheery message on our smartphones asking, how was your trip to Morrison's? But believe it or not, high levels of snooping into the intricacies of our lives didn't start with the internet. The current annual budget for MI5 is just over £3 billion. That's £3 billion used solely to watch and retrieve information about people in the UK, and doesn't include any customised Aston Martins or weaponised Rolex watches for use overseas. No one debates this sum in Parliament. Neither does it ever attract comment by MPs outside the House. It simply goes through on the nod. If three billion a year prevents another 7-7 or Manchester Arena bombing, you might say that this is money well spent, and I wouldn't entirely disagree. But Auntie Miriam was no terrorist. And similarly, the anti-apartheid movement, Greenpeace, CND and other protest groups of a similar stripe never advocated overthrowing the government. Neither have they ever compromised our security or provided cover for terrorists. The only possible reason to snoop is that their activities oppose and sometimes embarrass whichever government is in power. Despite any inalienable right to a private life, it never stopped brick-level surveillance of innocent people over 50 years ago, much of it illegal. And I would bet the farm that such breaches of privacy are even more prevalent today. Because she failed to disclose her participation in a legal and peaceful march, the US Homeland Security Department made its decision and rejected her application for residency. After a few years, some expensive legal help and a lot of letter writing, the embassy reversed its decision. But by then, Miriam and Seymour had made their home in the London suburb of Snaresbrook. It was my mother who first told me about Miriam's ordeal soon after it happened. I tried playing devil's advocate, using the line that comes easily to the lips of politicians and their supporters. Surely if you've done nothing wrong, then you've nothing to fear. Quick as a flash, Mum fired back. In that case, you won't mind if we put a closed-circuit camera in your bedroom, so we can keep an eye on anything that goes on up there. I'm sure you're doing nothing illegal, but just in case... That was Believe It or Not, written and read by Matthew Diamond. If you enjoyed this podcast, then why not hit like and subscribe on Acast or wherever you get your podcasts. And please leave a review if you can. And I'll see you next time. You're listening to The Souvenir Shop, a podcast about random objects from the past. Number 37. The Tiles. The set of three framed ceramic tiles holds pride of place in our hallway. They are the work of Walter Crane, a prominent member of the Victorian Arts and Crafts movement. These are the heirlooms I love most the ones I feel supremely lucky to possess. If you don't know the name Walter Crane, you've at least seen some of his work. 
if you pick up a children's book from the late 19th century, there's a good chance that Crane provided the illustrations. In a completely different genre, those trade union banners from the period, with an idealised Mother Earth advocating peace, plenty, equality and the rest, are also mainly the work of Crane. Most famously, there's his painting, Neptune's Horses, depicting white stallions emerging from the waves. It's the one Guinness brought to life in their acclaimed surfer advert, accompanied by the soundtrack of a heartbeat and a man reading Moby Dick. Partly because of the success of the Guinness advert, there are reproductions of Neptune's horses now hanging in living rooms all over the world. My water crane tiles are not reproductions. It all began with my Auntie Rose and Uncle Bernie. They were jobbing actors and, like many in their profession, started an antiques business as a way of making ends meet during periods of resting. Because neither Rose nor Bernie were usually acting at the same time, their unit in a Portobello arcade called Roger's Antique Gallery, and known to all simply as Roger's, always opened on Saturdays, the main antiques day on Portobello. In 1962, Bernie and Rose were both cast in principal roles in Lionel Bart's new musical Blitz at the Adelphi Theatre for a long run. This presented them with the problem that on Saturdays there were both matinee and evening performances. They could be at Portobello to open the shop, but only stay until their one o'clock call. That's when my mother stepped in to mind her older sister's store until closing time. Blitz ran for two years. A palpable hit by West End standards, but not as huge as Lionel Bart's previous musical Oliver, an artistic leviathan which has become part of our cultural zeitgeist. Bernie and Rose returned to their previous lives as jobbing actors and antique dealers. Meanwhile, my parents, now bitten by the antiques bug, started Carry Diamond Antiques, firstly in Camden Passage, then joining my aunt and uncle at Rogers around 1966. Mum and Dad were both already gainfully employed. Mum, a freelance pattern book designer, and Dad, a biochemist. But this didn't stop them from waking up at around 4am every Saturday to sell at Portobello Road, then at the same time every Sunday to buy new stock at Cutler Street in the East End. Having three scrappy sons to feed and clothe probably had something to do with it, but it's more likely that they enjoyed having a hobby as a business. Throughout my childhood, Carrie Diamond Antiques thrived to the extent that they opened a second outlet in the main market on Saturdays, employing my two teenage brothers on commission to sell bygones and collectibles. To my regret, as the baby of the family, I never got in on the action, but as a child labourer I had my uses. After Friday night dinner at my grandparents, my job was to help polish the silver and brass with a tin of Goddard's Duraglit ready for the next day. It often also meant hanging around Portobello Road on Saturdays with not a lot to do. It wasn't too bad. To keep me occupied, Dad always let me choose two comics, a DC and a Harvey, to help me pass the time. This was the 1960s, and Portobello, along with Carnaby Street and King's Road, was the nexus of swinging London. But with my nose in Superman, or Casper the Friendly Ghost all day, the psychedelic era mostly passed me by. In fact, my abiding memory is the entire street stinking of old cabbage and boiled socks, a fug I realised in later years to be the lingering odour of hashish. What with Portobello Market being the swingiest, not to mention grooviest place on earth, my mother's shop attracted customers from far and wide. I recall Vincent Price, a collector of Victorian inkwells, complaining to my mother about his children's life choices, with all the weight and Hollywood charisma of another mum at the school gates. But the one I remember most was Ursula Andrus. Another jobbing actress, who I believe ran an antique clock shop in Switzerland and regularly travelled to London on buying sprees. Even at the age of nine, 
having seen neither what's new pussycat or Dr. No, I knew I was in the presence of a goddess. As Mum discussed the whys and wherefores of some or other timepiece, my adoration was all too obvious. Spotting this, Mum later advised me that I might in future have some success with the opposite sex if I learned to at least say hello and not simply stare open-mouthed like an idiot. Every Sunday, my parents would return from their own buying spree, laden with bigels, smoked salmon, and newly acquired treasures to be sold on at the best price as quickly as possible. But over the years, there were a few keepers they retained as an investment, or simply because they were too nice to sell. Among these were a miniature by William Ross, Queen Victoria's official portrait painter, a beautiful and rare Russian silver snuff-box with an inlaid picture of the hermitage, and the water crane tiles. In the early 1980s, Dad took early retirement and my parents closed the Portobello business to take over a standalone shop near a home and devote themselves to antiques full-time. It didn't go well. Within a few years, the bottom fell out of the antiques trade, partly due to changing fashions and partly because of a collapse in silver prices. Various keepers needed selling off at auction to keep their heads above water, the miniature and the snuffbox included. But it seemed they loved the tiles too much to let them go. Mum died in 2009 and Dad followed three years later. One of the saddest things many of us ever have to do is clear out the home we grew up in after our parents have gone, watching a large part of our lives flushed away in a matter of days. My brother Andrew and I met at their house the day after Dad's funeral to begin the process, and the first thing we discussed was who got which heirloom. I got the tiles. I've since discovered that one of the reasons my parents kept the tiles was that, despite Walter Crane's renown, they really are not all that valuable. But I don't care about that. The main thing is that they grace our home as beautifully today as at my parents' home five decades ago, and that one day they will grace our son's home just as magnificently. A testament to both Walter Crane's genius and my mother's fabulously good taste. That was The Tiles, written and read by Matthew Diamond. If you enjoyed this, then why not like and subscribe on Acast or wherever you get your podcasts, and please leave a review. And I'll see you next time. You're listening to The Souvenir Shop, a podcast about random objects from the past. Number 38. The Walk. A dog-eared theatre programme from August 1975 for a show at the Shaw Theatre on Euston Road in London. It has somehow survived countless house moves during the ensuing 48 years, and for want of knowing where to store it, the programme sits between two hardback books on my shelf. What did you do for your 16th birthday? Go on an underage pub crawl? Have a party? Lose your virginity? Do you even remember back that far? When I first got round to telling my friends how I spent my first coming of age, I got the kind of bemused looks that made me wish I'd either lied or remained stumm. With hindsight, I had no reason to be embarrassed, because I spent the evening of Wednesday the 6th of August 1975 at the Shaw Theatre, watching Max Wall in his one-man show. We don't hear much about Max Wall now. 33 years after his death, the world has moved on, and to be fair, most comedians, even legendary ones, are eventually forgotten. So here's a quiz for you. Which comedian was at the centre of the longest-running sitcom on commercial television? 
Was it Tommy Cooper? Charlie Drake? Morecambe and Wise? In fact, it was Dickie Henderson, a long-dead song-and-dance comedian whose name now draws a blank with anyone under 60. If Max Wall is remembered at all, it's for the eccentric walk he did as his alter ego, Professor Wolofsky. The walk that many said presaged Michael Jackson. Until the 1950s, Max Wall, like Dickie Henderson, was one of the biggest stars in Britain. A massive live draw with his own hugely popular radio series and starring roles in West End Theatre. And then the scandals hit. His marriage broke down and resulted in him committing the cardinal sin of running off and marrying the current Miss Great Britain. It was the familiar tale of a successful career sacrificed on the altar of the news of the world. But in the 1970s, he made a spectacular comeback. Firstly, he played the failed comedian Archie Rice in a revival of John Osborne's The Entertainer. And the critics unanimously said his performance was better than Laurence Olivier's when the latter created the role. There followed an equally acclaimed performance in Samuel Beckett's Crap's Last Tape and then as Estragon in Waiting for Godot. A look at his career leading up to this means that his success as Archie Rice came as no surprise. After the Sunday papers trashed his career, Max went from a star of stage and screen to touring northern working men's clubs to make ends meet. By all accounts, he was very good at this, but still had to deal with audiences who heckled or ignored him while they waited for the stripper to come on. But save for a few bit parts in films, the 1960s were Max Wall's wilderness years. Then, in the early 70s, he was picked up by the group Mott the Hoople, who booked him as their support act. Imagine going to see your favourite band in 1972 and having to sit through a weird little old man while you waited for the group to appear. This gives you some idea of how well Max went down with most of the crowd. He knew what it was like to die on stage and he knew what it was to need to pick yourself up for the next show where the same thing would happen and the next. And earlier in his career, he shared variety bills with has-been and never-were comedians, still managing to plaster on Leichner makeup for another night of torment. So, when Archie Rice says the words, Look at these eyes. I'm dead. Behind these eyes, I'm dead. Max Wall knew exactly what the character he played was talking about. But if this was merely about the Indian summer of Max Wall previously washed-up comedian, I wouldn't be discussing him now. Because once he put his career back on track via legitimate theatre, he returned to his comedy roots by staging a two-hour, one-man show called Aspects of Max Wall. And that's the show I saw when I turned 16. I wouldn't have known this at the time, but the reason his success in the one-man show tied in with his success playing Beckett was that Max Wall was probably the last genuine example of a pre-television era clown. The clown has suffered a bad press in recent years, seen as either a joyless circus act or an excruciating Piero with a painted tear under the left eye. At worst, the clown has become synonymous with serial killers like John Wayne Gacy or the more recent versions of Batman's archenemy, the Joker. I always hated circuses, and by the time I was 16, the cloying pathos of silent clowns such as Charlie Chaplin or Harry Langdon rendered them unwatchable. The only exception was Buster Keaton, whose stone-faced acceptance of the physical and mental torture of simply trying to get through the day in one piece spoke the most fundamental truth an adolescent in the 1970s could grasp. Shit happens. I was always a fan of the Marx Brothers, but however brilliant Harpo was as a physical comedian, he was fortunate that his antics were balanced by the verbal dexterity of Groucho and Chico. I have their early films on DVD and always skip forward during the bits where he's alone or when he plays the harp. To see aspects of Max Wall, 
was to see all the energy and elegance and skill and chaos of the Marx Brothers distilled into one person. His shape-shifting physicality gave us a stage presence able to be as charming as Fred Astaire one moment and as repulsive as Gollum the next. His act reached back to the great silent stars, to Dan Leno and Little Titch, all the way back to Joseph Grimaldi and beyond. But it was his stage patter, the way he worked the audience, with total nonsense, and just the right measure of couldn't-care-less, screw-you-if-you-don't-find-this-funny acid, just below the surface, that I remember most. Have a look at archive footage of almost any comedian from Max's heyday be it Arthur Askey or Max Miller, and you'll see someone who, however good, gives off the feeling of desperately wanting to be liked. But it was clear that Max Wall couldn't give a toss whether he was liked or not, and that made us love him all the more. And the chutzpah with which he analysed his comedy, and our reaction to it, places him as the true godfather of alternative comedy. That's right, not Peter Cook, not Spike Milligan, and definitely not Alexis Sale. Max was doing meta-comedy before Stuart Lee and James Acaster had even been thought of. You can watch a long extract of Aspects of Max Wall from the early 1980s on YouTube, filmed at the Greenwich Theatre. After my long peon to a great clown, you'll as likely wonder what was all the fuss about to which I give the standard answer about a filmed live performance unable to recapture the magic. You had to be there. I was there. At the time, I was torn about what direction my career might take as I passed from awkward child to awkward adult. Many people who went on to become performers will talk at length about seeing Judy Dench as Lady Macbeth or Anthony Scher as Richard III, in my case, it was decided by a wiry old man who, having caused endless and by now agonising laughter in a packed house on my 16th birthday, ended with the world-weary comment of I suppose I'd better do the silly walk now. That's what you all came for. And then he did the walk. That was The Walk. Written and read by Matthew Diamond. If you enjoyed this, then why not hit like and subscribe on Acast or wherever you get your podcasts, and please leave a review. And I'll see you next time. You're listening to The Souvenir Shop, a podcast about random objects from the past. Number 39. The Gong. It sits in a box with a pile of unsorted papers. A formal letter from 1967 announcing that my grandfather, Alfred Diamond, had been included in that year's Queen's Birthday Honours list, and that he was to attend Buckingham Palace where he would be invested as an officer of the Order of the British Empire, an OBE. The pros and cons of the honours system is an argument that has rumbled on ever since I can remember. Objectively, the idea of awarding someone a medal dedicated to an empire that effectively ceased to exist around the time of Suez is ridiculous. Coupled this with the fact that successive Prime Ministers have rendered the whole system a laughing stock, and perhaps it's time to do away with them altogether, or at least replace the various MBEs, CBEs and knighthoods with something that belongs after the Victorian era. A look at the 1967 birthday honours shows how different the world was. The list contains the usual civil servants, industrialists, senior academics and military top brass, in addition were what we term the great and the good. Charity bosses, council chiefs, museum curators and the rest. But what sticks out like a sore thumb is the lack of any familiar names. 
We are now used to the birthday and New Year's honours handing out medals by the bucket load to any celebrity whose TV series made it to four seasons. But in 1967, all we get are Vanessa Redgrave and Richard Attenborough, both receiving CBEs. It should be remembered that two years previously, Daily Telegraph readers went apoplectic when it was announced that all four Beatles were to be awarded MBEs. This was a time when, if you were made a commander, officer or member of the Order of the British Empire, the idea of the British Empire, although defunct, still carried weight. According to the citation, my grandpa was honoured for his charity and community work in East London. His rags-to-riches story is the stuff of blockbuster films and novels, with one twist. He remained a committed socialist right up until his death. Born in 1901, he went to Davenant Grammar School in Whitechapel, but left at 14 without any qualifications. This was around the same time Grandpa ran away from home to escape his violent alcoholic father. While living in a hostel for the homeless, he worked by day as an office boy and studied bookkeeping at evening classes. It was also around this time that he became interested in radical politics. At 16, he was secretary of the London branch of the Socialist Labour Party, a small organisation with no connection to the National Labour Party that eventually merged with others to form the British Communist Party. In 1917, the Bolsheviks overthrew the Russian government and leftist parties all over the world fully expected the revolution to spread globally within days. To this end, Grandpa went to Leeds to organise workers in the North East. As we all know, the Russian Revolution was yet another May Day that never quite made it to June, and Grandpa returned to London, the office and his studies. Six years later, and now a fully qualified accountant, he began work at Arcos, the all-Russian cooperative society. This was a commercial arm of the Soviet Union, through which their goods were imported into the UK. But since Britain at this time didn't recognise the Soviet government, Arcos also served as an unofficial embassy for any diplomatic activity between the two countries. Relations between Britain and the Soviets collapsed in 1927 when Special Branch raided the offices of Arcos and closed the company. Grandpa, now married with a son, my father, endured a long period of unemployment. For the rest of his life, he claimed that he couldn't find work because he was blacklisted, although to his grandsons, the idea of a blacklisted accountant still sounds odd. But there was another outcome. Grandpa was, up until then, a staunch member of the Communist Party, a party that repaid his loyalty by shunning him and his former co-workers suspecting that the events leading up to the Arcos raid were an inside job. Although he remained a die-hard socialist and out of habit a daily worker reader, he now despised the British Communist Party, the Soviet Union and their betrayal of everything they claimed to stand for. A year later, via Grandpa's brother-in-law, he began working for a man called Bill Lee, a property developer and entrepreneur in Chingford then a small rural town 12 miles from London. The family moved into a new semi-detached house and enjoyed their middle-class idyll until the 1930s recession bankrupted Lee, the house was repossessed and they were back in the East End. Unemployed again and living in a Hackney council flat, Grandpa threw himself into community work by helping to manage a Jewish youth club in Stepney. One of the senior figures running the club also happened to be Alex Simpson, owner of Dax Simpson, the clothing manufacturer and retail company. Grandpa was offered a job with Simpsons and quickly rose through the ranks, eventually becoming a financial director. He was appointed a magistrate, served as a director of the Jewish Board of Deputies, as a prison visitor, and worked tirelessly to improve the lot of people in the East End, Amongst other things, until war broke out, 
he served as secretary of the British Labour Esperanto Association, which is strange because I don't think I ever heard him utter a word of Esperanto. After reaching board level at Dax Simpson, Grandpa served on industrial tribunals, hearing unfair dismissal cases brought by sacked employees. As happens today, such a tribunal was composed of three people, a barrister acting as chair and representatives from both the Trades Union Congress and the Institute of Directors. Grandpa, representing the latter, often shocked the other two by displaying an attitude far to the left of the union member. Eventually, his good works in East London led him to receiving his OBE, and being honoured in such a way had no effect on Grandpa's political views, with one exception. As a result of meeting the Queen, who asked him at length about his community work, Grandpa became a vocal supporter of the royal family, and would remain so for the rest of his life. It didn't matter if it was Princess Anne's rudeness or Prince Philip's racism. If any member of the Diamond family disparaged the Windsors within earshot of Grandpa, they were quick to hear his defence. But when my parents started a modest antiques business, it didn't stop him calling them capitalist, or as he liked to term it, capitalist. Retirement in 1970 didn't slow Grandpa down. Among his various charitable and non-governmental work, he became a visiting lecturer at Oxford University, teaching law students about industrial relations and tribunal legislation. Not bad for someone who left school at 14. It was on one such trip that he fell ill. Stomach cancer was diagnosed, and he died a few weeks later, in April 1978. After Grandma died in 1991, the medal, in its box, ended up with my father and sat half forgotten in a cupboard until the late 1990s, when my parents' house was burgled. Amongst the cash, jewellery and portable electricals stolen was the OBE. Dad requested a replica, only to be told that the honour died with Grandpa, and any replacement was impossible. All I have now is the letter. That was The Gong, written and read by Matthew Diamond. If you enjoyed this, then please hit like and subscribe on Acast or wherever you get your podcasts. And please leave a review. I'll see you next time. Listening to The Souvenir Shop, a podcast about random objects from the past. Number 40 The Battle of Cable Street. Today's object is a memoir written nearly 12 years ago. In this edition of The Souvenir Shop podcast, we have a small departure. Last week, my father Paul would have turned 98. So, as a special late and posthumous birthday present, I've invited him on as the guest writer for this episode. On October the 4th, 1936, a demonstration took place in the East End of London that has since become something of an iconic touchstone in the fight against racism. I'm talking about the event known as the Battle of Cable Street. At the time, Dad was a boy of 11, and, ignoring his parents' demand that he stay indoors, he went and joined the hundreds of thousands of people who rallied to stop Oswald Mosley's black shirts marching through a Jewish area. 75 years later, a year before his death, he wrote this personal account of the day. There was one problem which was seriously affecting the Jewish population of the East End. 
Mosley's British Union of Fascists, the BUF, was making its presence felt in every aspect of our lives. They had taken their uniform from Mussolini's black shirts in Italy, but had taken many of their policies from the Nazis in Germany. Hitler had found that he could gain support from a poverty-stricken population with high unemployment and terrible shortages by putting the blame for Germany's troubles on a minority section of the population, the Jews. Mosley followed him using two main arguments. One was that the Jews were all very rich and controlled the banks and hence the economy of the country and they used their power to create unemployment so they could hold down wages and increase their own wealth. The other argument was that the poor immigrant Jews of the East End would work in conditions and for wages that no honest Englishman could tolerate, so the Jews got whatever jobs were going, leaving honest English families to starve on the dole. This was mixed with various quotations from the Protocols of the Elders of Zion, and those who chose to believe these so-called facts felt that whatever they did was justified. This line has been followed by all extreme right-wing parties ever since. Whatever was wrong was the fault of immigrants. Added to this was the overwhelming evidence that the BUF paid 10 shillings a week to those who wore the black shirt, and the conditions were there for the growth of the party. Some of the national press supported them. Originally, the Daily Mirror gave some support to what it thought was a new radical party, but soon changed its mind. The Daily Mail, however, supported the BUF for several years. The newspaper's owner, Lord Rothermere, even wrote an article headlined Hurrah for the Black Shirts! and another article described Mosley as a great English gentleman. There was even evidence that the Mail contributed to the costs of a mass meeting addressed by Mosley at Olympia, where hecklers were badly beaten up by the black-shirted stewards. In the East End, Jews were attacked, synagogues and graveyards desecrated, and the windows of Jewish shops broken. On any bare brick wall, you saw lightning flash symbols of the BUF, often with the letters PJ, Perish Judah, beside it. The authorities did little about it. Sir John Simon, the Home Secretary, was quoted as saying that the attacks made his blood boil. The cartoonist Lowe published a cartoon showing an old bearded Jew lying on the pavement while two black shirts vanished round the corner. Sir John Simon was sitting nearby with a very red face and a balloon coming from his mouth repeating that his blood boiled, while a couple of policemen stood by with a kettle to boil on his head to make a cup of tea for the victim. The climax came in October 1936, when Mosley announced that 6,000 of his black shirts were going to march along Whitechapel through the Jewish quarter of the East End. They wanted to show who was boss. They wanted to show that Jews were unwelcome, and that they could take over the Jewish areas whenever they wanted. The response from the various political parties was fairly consistent. The Labour leader, George Lansbury, the Labour mayor of Stepney, and the Labour newspaper, the Daily Herald, all told their supporters to ignore the march. Conservative and Liberal politicians didn't give an opinion, but said that in a democracy they were entitled to march. The Communist Party was holding a meeting to support the Spanish Republicans in Trafalgar Square on the same day, and told its members to go there. Even the Jewish Defence Committee told London Jews to ignore the march. It soon became apparent that many local people wanted to stop the march, and they ignored the advice of the political leaders. So the Communists did a U-turn and later claimed leadership of the protest. The slogan of the Spanish Republicans, No Passera, They Shall Not Pass, was quickly taken up. A quotation from Hitler was also passed around. If the socialists had realised what our intentions were, they would have knocked us off the streets with vigour. Everywhere you went, you heard people making arrangements to meet and go to Allgate and stop the fascists. 
Even at my youth club, I heard the older boys chatting about it. And at home, my father and mother talked about similar discussions in their own old boys and old girls clubs. The head of the club, Basil Henricus, took the official line and tried to persuade members not to get involved. As with the politicians, he was roundly ignored. On that Sunday, my family gathered at my grandparents' flat in Langdale Mansions off Commercial Road. My grandfather, my parents, and my mother's brothers and sisters, together with their partners, were all going to join the counter-demonstration. Shandle, my grandmother, was going to stay behind to look after my little sister and me. Before they left, my mother gave me strict instructions to stay indoors and not venture outside. Then they joined all those who were leaving Langdale Mansions, which was soon deserted. I was eleven years old and had no intention of missing the fun, so when my grandmother was busy with my sister, I ran out and soon joined the crowds walking to Allgate. Because I was small, I managed to dodge between the adults and soon positioned myself opposite gardeners. This was a triangular-shaped department store on the corner of Whitechapel and Commercial Road. It specialised in uniforms and other clothing for the Merchant Navy. To march along Whitechapel, the black shirts would have to get past gardeners, but even the police estimated there were a quarter of a million protesters blocking their way. The black shirts marched from their gathering point in Royal Mint Street, chanting, Yids! Yids! We've got to get rid of the Yids! And then they stopped. The police did their best to clear the way for them. Again and again, mounted police with batons charged the crowd and a number of people were hurt. But the crowd was too large for any path to be made. Then somebody had a bright idea. They broke into a toy warehouse in Houndsditch and liberated some sacks of glass marbles. These were strewn over the road so that neither horses nor people could move. Despite this, a couple of the black shirts managed to struggle as far as gardeners. Standing there were a local hero, Jack Kidberg, the world light welterweight boxing champion, and a huge Irish docker. There had always been an undertow of tribal tension between the Jews of the western part of Stepney and the Irish dockers of the eastern end. But when it came to black shirts, they stood shoulder to shoulder. As the black shirts tried to pass them, Kidberg grabbed them by the shoulders and the docker grabbed their feet and then swung them one and two and straight through Gardiner's window. It became obvious that despite the help the police were giving them, the black shirts were not going to march up Whitechapel Road. We found out later that it was Sir Philip Game, the Metropolitan Police Commissioner, who suggested that they divert the march to Cable Street. Preparations had already been made to barricade Cable Street, which was south of Whitechapel, nearer the river. Market stalls were on their sides, and even a lorry was turned over to block the path of the marchers. Police arrived to dismantle the barricades and were met by stones and bottles while women in the upper stories of the houses were emptying buckets and chamber pots on their heads. The police advised Mosley to divert his followers back through the city where they could march, probably unnoticed, along the Thames embankment. The Battle of Cable Street was over. There was a party atmosphere in the East End that evening. The slogan, they shall not pass, was fulfilled and Hitler's advice taken. His allies were indeed knocked off the streets with vigour. Such was the rejoicing that I wasn't even told off for disobeying my mother's instructions. Mosley's humiliation was followed by a sharp fall in the fascists' image. Parliament further weakened that image by passing a law the following year that made the wearing of political uniforms illegal. Although there were still attacks and vandalism, they were not as common as they had been before. And they never tried to march through the East End again. Thank you for that, Dad. And thank you for teaching me such a valuable lesson 
decades before the first Antifa hashtag appeared. From an historical perspective alone, a few of Dad's observations are worth picking up on. First of all, the actual Battle of Cable Street was not between the locals and Mosley's black shirts. More interestingly, it was between the locals and the police, brought in to ensure a march by a provably violent organisation took place. Secondly, there's the matter of the British Communist Party. It is on record that they saw their anti-Franco demonstration at Trafalgar Square as more important than anything happening in the East End. Their U-turn only happened a few days before October the 4th, once they knew their own event would probably be a flop. Obviously, Mosley and the Daily Mail blamed everything that happened on that day on the Communist Party, and the party was happy to be named as ringleaders, still wearing this as a badge of honour years later. This has become the received wisdom ever since, and still appears in scholarly books and articles about Cable Street. The truth is both encouraging and rather wonderful. Opposition to Mosley on this occasion came from ordinary people, simply talking to each other and collectively deciding they weren't going to tolerate an upper-class fascist and Hitler wannabe on their turf. The lesson from this is clear. Opposition to racism doesn't start with political parties or leaders or organisations or social media. It starts with you. That was The Battle of Cable Street, written by Paul Diamond and read by his son Matthew. If you enjoyed this, then please like, subscribe and leave a review wherever you get your podcasts. And I'll see you next time.